think there's opportunities, all that to say, um, where we can play a role, right? Like higher ed can't do all of the socialization around politics, but I think we have a really unique and important role and the opportunities that we have to have those conversations to think about, wow, you know, what happened on Tuesday at the I.O. or Monday on the I at the I.O. caucuses? What did you see? What did you hear? What was interesting? How does that relate to where you grew up? How was it different? Um, and those probing questions get students to think, right, and, and um, help them think about their own values, their own lived experiences. And Welcome to Student Affairs Now, the online learning community for student affairs educators. I am your host, Heather Shea. Today on the podcast, I'm welcoming back two folks who have participated in previous episodes to talk a bit about their joint work on a project that came from the Institute for Democracy and Higher Education called Democracy Redesigned, which I learned about um, in November at ASH uh, last year. And as I was thinking about this, we're nearing the 2024 election. In fact, we're recording this episode just a couple of days after the Iowa caucuses. And there seems to be a fair amount of conversation about the risks to democracy in the US. Um, and as a student affairs educator, as we collectively seek to engage students in discussing, dissecting, reinventing, you know, identifying their own democratic values, um, that we need to have in 2024 and beyond. I was really excited to, um, to welcome Dimitri and Adam um, to the show today. So their offices, as well as the IDHE, or the Institute for Democracy in Higher Ed, are resources to look to. And this new model that we'll be talking about today, about to be unveiled, is an incredible tool. So thank you both for being here today. It's great to have you. Before we open, yeah, before I welcome both of them on, I'm going to just say a little bit about the podcast and about our sponsors for today. So Student Affairs Now is the premier podcast and learning community for thousands of us who work in, alongside, or adjacent to the field of higher education and student affairs. We hope you find these conversations make a contribution to the field and are restorative to the profession. We release new episodes every week on Wednesdays, and you can find us at studentaffairsnow.com on YouTube or anywhere you listen to podcasts. This episode would not be possible without the support of one of our new sponsors, Rutledge Taylor Francis. You can view their complete catalog of authoritative education titles at www.rutledge.com education. And this episode is also sponsored by Leadership. Go to leadership.org to learn how they can work with you to create a just, caring, and thriving world. As I mentioned, I am the host for today's episode, Heather Shea. My pronouns are she, her, and her. And I am broadcasting from the ancestral, traditional, and contemporary lands of the Anishinaabe, Three Fires Confederacy of Ojibwe, Adawa, and Potawatomi peoples otherwise known as East Lansing, Michigan, home of Michigan State University, where I work. So let's get on to the conversation. Um, welcome back to both of you. Um, so excited to have this conversation today. Maybe we could begin with each of you um, providing a brief introduction, talk a little bit about your role, your work as part of IDHE and um, NSOLVE. I know there's that's an acronym that one of you will tell us about, um, and then generally how you got involved um, in this project and maybe a little bit more about your work on your camp respective campuses as well, um, and how you're entering today's conversation. I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful, but I, I am curious what you both think. So Adam, we'll start with you. Welcome back. Um, thanks for having me and uh, Dimitri today. It's exciting to, to be back and talking about one of my favorite topics. Um, I would say I'm entering the conversation today determined. So uh, I wouldn't say either optimistic or pessimistic or anything, but um, determined to identify and, and help solve problems, I guess. Um, so uh, I direct uh, NSOLVE, which is a national study of learning, voting, and engagement. Um, it's the largest study of student voting in the country uh, at Tufts University. And um, prior to that, I was director of impact at the Institute for Democracy and Higher Education. Um, until recently, IDHE was sort of the umbrella organization that housed NSOLVE and um, was also located at IDHE. 
Um, it and our founder, uh, Nancy Thomas, is now at, uh, at AACNU. And um, yeah, I'm sure we'll talk more about that today. She was one of the partners um, in this work. Um, and yeah, it's been exciting to work with Dimitri on this project, who I'll, I'll turn it over to now. Great. Welcome, Dimitri. Thanks so much. Really excited to uh, be here with you, Heather and, and Adam. Um, so yeah, so I'm Dimitri. Uh, you see him pronouns. I'm a faculty member at Loyola University Chicago. I um, have been connected to Tufts and IDHE and Adam and Nancy for a few years now. But the way I got into this uh, work, um, like most uh, kind of really involved uh, undergraduate student leaders, um, a lot of my sort of political sense making and understandings happened as I was involved in fraternity sorority life or participating in you know student clubs and activities. And so uh, as I moved through graduate school and continue to have opportunities to work with students as kind of saw that this idea of how people were engaging in politics was becoming an increasing feature of how people not only identified, but also um, how it impacted uh, and, and enveloped so many other components of campus life. Uh, and so did my dissertation work on uh, the student identity or political identity development of students mm -hmm. and kind of bridged um, some of our kind of OG um, student development theories and um, tried to merge them with sort of organizational thinking. So what happens? And so I was thinking in very similar ways to the ways that Adam and uh, Nancy Thomas and others were thinking about this kind of how complex this kind of political landscape is. Uh, and so we've you know been partners over the last few years working on trying to um, continue to kind of think through and provide resources and tools for uh, different members of the community. And so really excited to talk about some of those today. Awesome. Well, it's really exciting. It was such an awesome session at ASH. And I, I, I learned a lot and it's exciting to be able to talk about this right in this kind of moment in time too. So this is a really timely conversation. Um, but Dimitri, let's stay with you for a moment because I want to um, like just for basic definition purposes, Let's begin with what is democracy? How do you define democracy? What are the fundamental principles and practices of democratic participation um, and policymaking? And, and, and we'll kind of go from there. So let's give some like basics for our audience. Yeah, I love this question as a as a former political science major and, you know, as somebody who kind of, you know, lives and drinks and sleeps um, the sort of political theater uh, of it all. Uh, and on the one hand, it's a super hard question because it's all of those things you just mentioned. Uh -huh. um, and depending on who you're talking to and what context you're talking about, it means different things to different people. So one of the things that I've appreciated about how Tufts and IDHE has um, even helped me to kind of simplify but still be rigorous in how we understand democracy is we, we talk about kind of two concepts. Um, and so one of those is that is this idea that democracy is a, is a form of governance, meaning that it's made up of systems and structures and policies. So think about things like the Constitution, uh, you know, the Bill of Rights, the way that our um, justice system is set up, the separation of powers, the, the states and, you know, the federal government. These are all systems and structures that give us uh, some some structure to how we operate in in a form of governance govern, governance um, and so that's important because you know societies need governance democracy is a version of that um, and if you want to be really technical it's you know we're a democratic republic because we elect our officials so it's not a direct democracy but that that structure piece is important the way that i kind of talk about it with students as well is you know think about a, a skeleton or think about the human body you need the skeleton to give you some structure and so the governance part of democracy is kind of like your our bones right it gives us a structure and just like bones can decay and 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 need to be maintained and healthy we need to you know have uh structures and systems and policies and laws that are continuously updated so but we'll get into that and then the other part we talk about is that 
Um, democracy is also a culture, meaning that it shapes the way that people interact with each other and interact with society, interact with those systems and, and governance structures. So it creates norms that are symbols. Think of the American flag. Think of the eagle um, as you know, kind of the national component. Think about the different state flags that are often, um, you know, so there are symbols as part of the culture, and then there's also just the, the, the norms, when we talk about uh, voting, when we talk about participating, there are expectations both explicit and implicit about what it means to do democracy. And those are kind of cultural pieces. And so that's important because, you know, again, just like a body has, you know, skin and kind of gives it its flavor and personality, how we do democracy adds, um, you know, different dimensions and, and different ways of experiencing um, the, the structures and, and system. And so even though we technically all have similar systems and structures, how we experience those things are going to be um, lived and experienced very differently depending on our identities and where we're from and our background and all of those things. So we try to break it down, all that being said, into this governance and into uh, culture to kind of, um, as best as possible, help us understand how dynamic uh, democracy is and how we, we got to be really specific in, about what we're talking about, because we could be talking about democracy in general, but really I'm talking about the cultural piece of it, and you're talking about the uh, structure and policy piece of it, and we, we might be missing each other. And so uh, th those two buckets give us a little bit of nuance without being super technical and jargony um, that, you know, sometimes the, the political scientists of us all um, like to get into. That's that's great. That's really a helpful way of thinking about it. I I was I like the bones metaphor because you know for me it's like you have to have a framework. You have to have kind of that like existing structure, and then what's on top of that is is also important. Um, so I guess the follow up that I have for this, and I said it in the beginning, is that there's been a lot of conversation about. Our democracy being threatened. Um, I, either of you, would do you think democracy is at risk in 2024? A risk of you know the bones breaking or you know completely deteriorating, like an osteoporosis. Well, we could stop with this metaphor. <laughs> uh. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll talk with it first. So, in in some ways, no, I don't think I'm not convinced or compelled by the arguments that um, it's at risk because there are some segments of the population, um, particularly people with minoritized identities, um, you know, women, people of color, uh, trans and non-binary people who, you know, we often say democracy was never built for and, and, and designed for. And so with, in one respect, democracy never worked for you know significant segments of our of our population and so it, it's it, it's almost like the kind of make america great again language it's like well when was america great and for whom and so the same thing is like is democracy being threatened well for some people the the promises of democracy have never been realized or or never um been enacted upon and so the question sort of presupposes um you know not your question but the sort of general yeah. sense yeah. presupposes um, a particular experience that um, leaves leaves out certain people, and so I always like to, to nuance it. On the other hand, I, I think you know every generation goes through particular events, whether it's the Vietnam War or um, you know what we describe as like focusing events, right? Things that bring people together. Um, you know, I'm sort of an elder millennial, and so came of age in the sort of 9/11, um, you know, sort of war on terror. Um, so every generation has things that sort of bring us to the brink that says like, is this is this the best we can do in this you know right. system of governance and and is this really working for us? Like I'll never forget being in college, going through the Great Recession, and it being like, am I going to have a job? Like is this you know how the world ends? Right. So I, I think every generation has, and then you kind of go through and it's like, okay, like that was bad, but we made it, we made it through it. And so I think there is a little bit of resiliency in people. I, I would not argue so much as the sort of systems, there's resiliency in people to, to be, 
to find ways to persist and to be um, resistant to things that are not working and remake them anew. Um, that gives me a little bit of hope. But I do think it, we are at a sort of generational moment where things are pretty bad. But are they any worse than Vietnam? I don't know. I wasn't around in Vietnam. But, you know, in, in some of the ones that have been um, particularly nerve-wracking for me, it, this is definitely on par, but I'm like, you know, I, I thought the world was literally going to end in 2007. You know, I just didn't know what was going to happen. Everybody was losing their home. And now, you know, here we are. So that perspective, I think, as, you know, people age also sort of balances out the, the moment a little bit. But I definitely think for our college students right now, this is a pretty harrowing time. Yeah. What about you, Adam? What do you think? Are we at risk? Um, I think... Um... Since we're all uh, going to our college majors, I was a sociology major. And one uh, of the things that I think about <laughs> is um, like the notions of folkways and mores and like like some of the informal ways in which, you know, Dimitri talked about the governance structures of democracy and then the cultural aspects of democracy. And I think some of the things that we took for granted as like, oh, you can't really do that in this country or this wouldn't work in a, for a politician or something like that. Um, that weren't codified or were loosely codified are the things that are definitely at risk. Because I think that there's, we're starting to see like some formulas emerge of um, how to get around some of those systems or how to disregard some of them. That concerns me. Um, and I think democracy, I think maybe the way I would say it is like democracy as we know it is at risk, but the democracy as we know it, as Dimitri said, is like, like, does it work for everyone? Like, what what have been our, what are the pluses of it? What are the negatives? And so, that and that's part of what this framework is designed for is to think about an aspirational vision of democracy. Um, so with IDHE, so I I was a part of the IDHE team, uh, since kind of like the early days through like like I said, it just moved, um, for almost eight years, and one of the things that we always got questions about, um was just the fact that the word democracy was in our, our title, Institute for Democracy in Higher Education. And so I, I started um, in, making it a habit for myself that at every presentation I would, I would address that actually proactively to think about like, why is that in there? And to talk about it with, with our audiences. And um, it was always centered on this idea. And I think this is part of the founding principles of the office that when we talk about democracy, we're talking about the democracy that we want to be all be part of creating and and sort of co-creating and in that context it was with kind of youth with college students um with people in the higher ed uh, realm so yeah i mean i think that like the sort of conventional wisdom thoughts around democracy and and what what uh what we can assume about it i think a lot of that is at risk but I think for some people, actually across the political spectrum, mm -hmm. it's sort of a question of, okay, so what? <laughs> like, I didn't like democracy anyway, or, you know, like, there, I think there are a lot of people that have that viewpoint, um, some very rightfully, because it's, as Dimitri said, it hasn't always worked for everybody. And in some cases, it's actively worked against people. So I think part of the work to be done in the democracy space is to, to think creatively and think broadly uh, think widely with a you know wide aperture around um, what democracy can look like and how it can you know serve the public good and then how we can think about our social problems and then uh, build a system that addresses those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I this is this conversation is making me think on so many different levels, right? Like it is about the you know, the one-to-one -one person engagement with a democratic process, like going in and voting. It's also about the systems and structures that allow for people to vote. Um, and then it's also about like the, the broader belief that we should promote and continue to, to have a democratic um, society, at least in the U.S. Um, so there's so many like layers, it seems like, as, as we're kind of unpacking this a little bit. Um, I am really interested in hearing more about the model, but let's let's talk a little bit about the historical component here because I know democracy by de democracy redesigned is actually the second or maybe the multi 
multiple third phase of mm -hmm. a broader project. So Adam, can you tell us a little bit about some of the some of the reasons why that project was initiated, democracy by design, you know, what were some of the opportunities that presented themselves, you know, given our recent history um, and how, how have we been able to in, in kind of problematizing some of the things that have happened in our society, like strengthen this, this uh, initiative? Sure. So um, actually, a lot of the work, um, I want to be clear, predates Dimitri and I's involvement in the project. Um, Nancy, who we mentioned, Nancy Thomas at AACNU, mm -hmm. um, was part of several meetings um, in the late, late 2000s uh, into the early 2010s um, at various convenings and conferences. And there were conversations around some of these big picture issues of democracy and um a number of civic organizations were involved. And so uh, about 10 years ago, the first version of Democracy by Design was was published in the Journal of Public Deliberation. And I think what Nancy was going for with that was bringing together a lot of these ideas that were just starting to emerge within, I think like uh, the spaces within which she was engaging at that time. And um, the initial model, the thought was, okay, if we have these different like sort of buckets of what makes up an aspirational democracy in the higher ed context, there can be this idea of, okay, this is a model for us to think about when we talk about civic and democratic outcomes of university life. And so I think the, the original thought around this was that students would learn a, a little bit from every category of democracy, but then learn do a project where they learn a lot about one of the areas. And so you have this kind of cross-cutting vision for um, political learning um, on college campuses. So that model uh, was released uh, in 2014, I believe. And then um, in 2018 in, at IDHE, we had had a lot of really difficult conversations around what was the role of our office? What was the role of civic organizations and uh, organizations centered around democracy? And um, the project kind of reemerged of like, oh, maybe that model should be revisited. And so there was, um, I think it was called Democracy by Design Revisited. <laughs> um, and that came out in 2018 in um, the Journal of Public Deliberation again. And it was there was a question around, is should deliberative democracy be a central part of this work? And would it adequately, adequately address some of these issues? So I think that it, it was seen as like an improved version of it. But um, in 2020, 2021, we had conversations of like, okay, we really need to like go into this and, you know, do some version of like really rethinking it, turning it upside down and and, and grow the team that's working on it. So um, several of us at IDHE um, were, were part of it. Um, I do also want to credit uh, Norma Lopez, another faculty member, Loyola Chicago, who was part of this with Dimitri, um, had been working on the IDHE team at the time as well. And um, several graduate students and, and folks from our team like all chipped into it. Um, but for that phase of the project, we, we looked very widely around different reports that had come out, um, research that had been done. We did interviews and focus groups with um, folks from different organizations to think about, like to kind of I think challenge our own thinking on this, but then also see like, what are we missing? Um, what what really are the threats to democracy? And then what would it like a fully functioning aspirational vision of democracy be? And so um, over the course of many meetings and uh, collaborative efforts, uh, writing, <laughs> uh, speaking through the issues, um, the model that we're gonna talk through was was sort of what emerged from that. And I should say that the project was largely funded through the generosity of the Lumina Foundation. Um, and so it gave us kind of this, the encouragement and the, the resources and the, the time and space to, to work through mass amounts of information and to think really critically about what had come before and then what might come next from it. Yeah. I think we've oh, kind of, uh, yeah, go ahead. Uh, I just really briefly, I think it's important about the history and 
we we see this not only in the like the civic learning and democratic engagement space, but in in many sectors of higher education where kind of an interested group of professionals or faculty mm -hmm. or an association will put out a report and say, hey, here's this problem, basic needs, here's this problem, low voting rates, here's this problem. And so they'll do a really rigorous report and they'll sort of name and frame the problem. And then there'll be sort of subsequent, you know, research and resources allocated towards um, the, the, the endeavor. Um, and it, you know, eventually sometimes becomes sort of normalized, right? Like I think basic needs within, you know, sort of the last 10 to 15 years is like a good example of it being on some people's radar the whole time. But in terms of, you know, many, you know, people sort of saying like, oh yeah, students' basic needs on campus, we can't take it for granted. What are we doing? Pantries and blah, 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 blah. So I think there's a culture in higher ed that's not unique to the civic learning and democratic engagement space of, you know, sort of doing reports and trying to spotlight issues and provide recommendations and rationale. And I think what we were also very thoughtful of, and as Adam mentioned, we, we spent a lot of time with, you know, literally since the 60s, there's been successive reports about higher ed's role in democracy. So starting then all the way through to, you know, the, the crucible moment that came on 2012, Nancy's work that Adam mentioned, there's been these, you know, really important reports that have come out that we also wanted to sit with and analyze and say, how do we kind of get out of that kind of boom to bust like report, lots of focus, and then to something that's a little bit more enduring. We hope, you know, we'll see, but it's something that's a little bit more enduring that has some flexibility in, in the framework that isn't just talking about a particular moment um, and, and why the aspirational piece is really important. And I think, again, for the historical context, that's important to know because I think, you know, you can think about, you know, the, some of the student affairs, um, you know, sort of foundational documents, like we just have this culture. And so we're also trying to break out of that a little bit to um, present a framework that we hope is a little bit more uh, enduring and also malleable to the different things that happen um, as, you know, campuses are continuing to respond to how democracy is continuing to um, change and adapt. I really appreciate that because I was thinking about models that are just like codified and then on a shelf, right? And, and you know, we constantly kind of push back of like, who does this apply to? Who was studied that, you know, created this model? And so I love that this um, group has really kind of revisited, re-envisioned, redesigned multiple times because that is, that's the nature of the work that we do broadly, but also with, when I think about all the new challenges that have arisen in the last 10 years, right? Like the model from 2014 or, or whatever year, what would not be relevant today, um, as relevant maybe. But I love that there is that constant kind of re-envisioning. Um, can, um, can I add yeah. just one thing on that point, Heather? So um, that was what you're describing is I think what animated the whole idea of us doing this as a session at ASH yeah. last year. Um, Ana Martinez Alamán, who is the president of Ash, um, invited us to to come talk through the model. And um, credit to Dimitri on being like, you know, what I think this audience would like really benefit from, and what I think people would be excited by, and what I think would help it, the model is this uh, like a kind of a teach-in format, which is very different from past Ash conferences, at least the ones that I've been to. Um, and so we sort of introduced the model, and then. Um, we leaned on some amazing scholars. I mean, Dimitri and I had this very long list of like a dream list of who might be able to help lead discussions in a large, uh, you know, conference space. And much to our delight, like pretty much everyone that we asked who was able to be there um, said yes and was enthusiastic about it. And so for, I think for us, it's really a matter of like, you know, it's it's a snapshot. It's like an existing thing. It'll be a document, I'm sure, and and you know you'll see the image of it. That's static, but I think for us it, it really is like a snapshot, and it's like the minute you kind of like put it out there, it's ready to be kind of ripped up and like revisited, and and that we want to layer as many perspectives as we can on this because I think that's that's the beauty of work in the democracy space is that you. It's, it's hard to come in and be prescriptive and it's hard to come in and be like, here are the rules of democracy and here's how, you know, how it should be. 
And I don't think that we have really any interest in that. What we have interest in is giving a framework, giving a starting point for discussion and inviting everyone into it so that we can really like challenge one another and have those deep discussions. That's sort of like the whole point of educational work. And, and I would argue also of democracy work. Yeah. It was a phenomenal session. I, you know, you go to these big, huge conference spaces and you kind of expect that you're going to get talked at, right? And, or there's going to be some interesting things. Maybe you're going to turn to your neighbor, but like literally the whole room just reconvened around these round tables. And then I, maybe one of the best, most generative conversations, you know, I, I had at Ash because of the people in that space. So I just want to shout out to, you both for facilitating, but then all of the folks who helped kind of at the tables and then Anna for kind of imagining uh, alongside, which I think is is a really a testament to Ash's kind of breaking some of those, like those rules, right? Conference conventions and such. So, well, let's get into talking about the model. Um, for those people who are listening, we are gonna show on this screen a, um, a picture of the model and Dimitri is going to kind of walk through a little bit and then our plan is to also link this document in the uh, show notes or in the in the um, episode website so folks who are listening to the podcast we definitely encourage you to go there so you can kind of um, experience the visual so Dimitri tell us a little bit about it yeah, so um, one of the things that is also important in terms of the context, and I'm going to run through this because there's lots of other things we want to talk about. So I, I definitely encourage you all to follow up with the links and resources. Um, but the, the redesign language was also really intentional. And so just like um, Heather and Adam have mentioned that, you know, we, we are looking for spaces and places for people to wrestle with the framework and to talk about it and to dream with it and to critique it. As a, as a working group and as a team, we, we did that with each other. Um, and, and even the, the name of redesign was trying to kind of acknowledge that there is some ways that democracy needs to be sort of designed anew and afresh. And there's other ways that we think or other things that we think are kind of hallmarks but need to be reformed. Um, and so even sitting in that tension um, is really important and, and it sort of you know was modeled within our sort of inner workings as a team. And as we've kind of slowly rolled it out, um, we've seen people activated by this. And so our hope, you know, again, is that this activates you. You know, we, we invite disagreement or skepticism or like, oh, and even at the table that I was facilitating, there were so many, you know, sort of really interesting thoughts where I'm like, yeah, we didn't think about that. Or yeah, I would love or see how that works in. Um, and so, you know, as you're sort of listening to this, but also in your follow up with this, um, we invite you to kind of use this as a, as a framework to to think with campus partners, to think with students, student organizations um, about what this looks like on your particular campus or in your in your unit. So as we mentioned, um, you know, we're, we're really it's really important to always emphasize we're talking about a more aspirational version of democracy, um, and that's trying to sit in the tension that, as we've mentioned a few times, democracy has never worked for some for some people for some groups. Um, and so when we talk about an aspiration, um, we we are trying to dream up and sort of um, have a, an idea of you know radical hope that uh, things can be different um, to the extent that we can work together, think together. Um, and remain in tension with how we move forward. So we sort of say that up front, kind of right at the top and big and bold. The center component of the framework talks about um, what, a, what democracy redesign is, and we sort of stand firmly on the principles of uh, equity, inclusion, and justice. And we know in some parts of the country, those have become bad words, but we think that democracy, you know, as um, sort of thought of um, and, and conceived in its best version is one where people have what they need, um, which is a sort of um, sort of crass version of or definition of equity, um, but is inclusive, which means people can participate um, a variety of ways and is also just right, meaning um, that there is a, a sense of being able to you know, live and experience, you know, the sort of fullness of, of humanity um, in both the structural way and in the, the more social way. So we, we sort of, the, the framework stands on those components. And um, we think when these kind of six uh, 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 
principles or practices are lived into, and it leads us more into this um, idea of equity, inclusion, and justice. So, you know, really briefly, the um, different components of the framework uh, starts with this idea of um, democracy uh, redesigned is contested and reinvented. And so this idea in short is what we've been talking about this whole time that um, we don't believe in sort of the static notion of democracy, that um, the, the contest of, of power of people saying, hey, we want things to be different or, hey, we need to hold on to some of these things. There's actually some good in the way that we talk about liberty or there's actually some good in the way that we you know, have separation of church and state whatever it may be, this idea of conserving things, but also progressing, right, which we know sort of makes up the parties, that's the, the bedrock of contested and reinvented. And we think that that's a healthy component. There are things we want to conserve. There are things we want to progress past. And so a democracy redesign does that. The second pillar is this idea of educated and informed. As educators, of course, we had to make sure that that was prominently in there. Um, and so it was really important for us to think about this idea of what does it mean to actually be educated? What does it mean to think about the de developmental um, experiences that we know students are going to go through uh, in the college environment in particular? And, and also recognizing that you can be educated, you can be a really great engineer, but not be informed at all about what's going on in public affairs or what's going on with your government. So we, we ground this in the media, we ground this in the way that people consume information that we want um, students in a, in a society that is both educated and informed um, and the interplay of those two things being really powerful. The third uh, practice is this idea of compassionate and empowering. We were working on this framework in the midst of COVID-19. And so when you think about what it means to be compassionate, um, where, you know, what does it mean to, to wear a mask, to protect your neighbor, to think about first responders and people who are, um, you know, sort of part of, um, you know, different industries that are having to work there's this idea of, of compassion that feels really important to a society that um, wants to be engaged in democracy when you're thinking about more than just yourself, um, but also one that's empowering, right? What does it mean to engage in, um, you know, sort of practices that allow people to be empowered in their life, life experiences, to recognize different forms of expertise, um, to understand how different people need to, you know, sometimes get out of the way or um, to, to move aside so that other people can can be activated. And so balancing those ideas um, was really important. And you'll notice that there's balance in a lot of these, um, which is sort of also something that we thought was important. Um, the, the next one is this idea of trustworthy. So ultimately, when you're working in, in groups, when you're working in society, um, there has to be a sort of fundamental idea of trust. So, um, you know, way back, not way back, but, you know, 30 years ago, this idea of bowling alone or social capital, how we um, engage in civic organizations or, you know, Girl Scouts, Boy Scouts. Um, and what does that look like in today's day and age to develop trust in one another um, in a sort of social media environment, in a, you know, artificial intelligence environment where trust in what is genuine is really hard to determine. And so we thought that this idea and concept of trustworthy, um, you know, maybe it doesn't look like social capital, but this idea of being able to understand and believe, you know, sort of your, your fellow person and what they're saying and what they're doing, and also having trust in the systems is really important. Which leads to uh, responsive and just. This is a little bit more on the governance side of things, but we want policies and systems that are responsive and just uh, to, to individuals. So, you know, can we access the ballot box? Are people able to navigate the, um, you know, criminal justice system in ways that are um, responsive to, you know, sort of changing norms and expectations? Uh, what does it look like to uh, make sure that governance, governance is accountable, that, you know, um, Politicians and policymakers are accountable to um, to people uh, is, is really important. And then, lastly, this idea of accessible and participatory. You know, to do democracy together, people have to have access, and this is access broadly defined. Everything from thinking about ability and 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 how people can experience things in ways that are responsive and, and thoughtful to the different ways people experience life. Um, 
all the way to making sure people can access, uh, you know, the opportunity to vote for their individuals or, you know, thinking about dreamers here or, or documented individuals or undocumented individuals. What does it look like to be um, have an accessible democracy and a participatory democracy as um, alongside really wrote in kind of um, concise ways of thinking about participation. So we wanted to dream and be expansive because we know that there are lots of different individuals who are participating in democracy, even if it's not codified in very narrow ways like voting. Um, and so in this category, we think really expansively about the practices um, that go into an accessible and participatory democracy. So that was the like 30 second cliff notes version, um, but hopefully that gives, you know, sort of an idea and also piques your interest to kind of follow up and uh, read a little bit more. We have kind of um, little blurbs and summaries of each of these things, uh, but that's kind of the, the general sense of, of those components. Wow. Thank you so much. This was um, a great refresher for me as I listened to you all talk about it at ASH and then reflecting on the conversation that we ended up having at our table. Um, Adam, other other things you'd like to add to the description of the model? Um, um, Dimitri crushed it, <laughs> so I don't want to. I don't want to. Uh, I don't want to even uh, touch it. I, I think you did a great job. I'll I'll say um, just because I realize we're referencing a lot this this Ash session. Um, I'll just say that. So what we did was we we shared the the background on it, some of the stuff that we've talked about today. And then we put out some discussion questions too at the tables. And so um, I think our hope is that we'll be able to have like more of like a public digital gathering space for people mm -hmm. on this. Mm -hmm. So for anyone that's listening or watching this, um, we'll link what we can, uh, including the, the image of the model. But I think things to look for coming forward on this will be, we, we've already done some writing on this. Um, uh, we have the questions from this and we will be packaging some of the, the early discussion uh, feedback that we got too. Yeah. So it sounds like there's going to be future opportunities for the audience for this podcast to connect, you know, either directly or through some kind of, you know, longer process. Um, do you want to say, mm -hmm. say more about, um, you know, where and how and, and that kind of thing, like how can they make sure that they stay in touch if, if it's just going to a website even? Sure, yeah, I mean, I think um, definitely I'll, I'll say like, I think you can reach out to Dimitri and I um, with questions or anything like that for clarification or to just like engage us. Like I think we're always happy to, to chat on email or Twitter or whatever. Um, but um, in terms of gathering spaces for this, like I said, it's uh, my guess is it'll probably come out like in various ways. Mm -hmm. um, we'll pro I might, it will probably be like redundant across like multiple mm -hmm. websites. Um, I know that uh, Nancy at uh, AACNU will have it up on the IDHE website at some point, like as these things come out. And I should note, I think this episode will be like up and most people will listen to this after the, after the moment has passed, but um at this week's AACNU conference, mm. um, there are going to be sessions on this too. So we're trying to really like get this out there for people to uh, to engage critically with and to to think about and to offer feedback to. Um, I think it's still a little bit to be determined how we're going to gather some of the feedback, but um, I I think our goal is to have some sort of like. Uh, digital spot at the very least to like where people can kind of add comments or, or read through this um, and maybe some like Google Docs and things like that that'll be interactive for folks. Cool. Yeah, very mm -hmm. cool. I'd love to hear um, a little bit. Our audience is, you know, folks who work in higher education in student affairs roles. There's practitioners, graduate students, faculty, um, you know, so when I think about like the application, I think about like engaging college students in some of these bigger conversations, um, you know, how college students come to identify themselves. And, you know, Dimitri, you said earlier about political identity development, like that's super fascinating. And before we started recording, we were talking about like, you know, coming to college is often a time to define yourself outside of how your parents have or your guardians or others have kind of framed your identity. So that also relates, of course, to politics. Um, I'd love to just spend a few minutes kind of in this space of like, 
how do we take this and make it applicable on our campuses and then keep the conversation going with students? Whoever wants to go first. <laughs> yeah, so I'll, I'll start off. So I think about it on like 50 levels, but yeah. I'll try to be concise. Um, so one of them, when we look, look at the, the research about, um, you know, sort of a student's a political identity development. One of the things that was so fascinating to me and why I chose to do my dissertation work on it is because a lot of the literature was kind of done in the post-World War II where people were like, you know, we got to fight off communism and, you know, make great, you know, American citizens. And, you know, what was most fascinating to me when we think about that time period with, you know, the GI Bill and, um, you know, sort of many other things where the, this, this idea of the middle, middle class was created is that um, people became very comfortable with this idea that the responsibility for civic education, it was a K through 12 endeavor. And between your K through 12, your church and your home life, people were going to get enough socialization to be good citizens. And, you know, you can see sort of the flaws in that thinking and sort of who is included in that model of K through 12, you know, sort of your church and, um, and in your your home life and so as you know so my you know mom is from jamaica grew up in a single parent household and you know we we were not having conversations around the dinner table about um about voting she came you know she had a green card and became a naturalized citizen but that was well into um you know my or early in, in my adult life and so this idea of um, you know, what is the role of higher education for me is both personal, but also really interesting because we know and not, you know, sort of saying anything bad about our K-12 colleagues, but we know that the, the education is going to be really different for different students coming through the K-12 pipeline when they get to us on college campuses. We know, you know, increasingly, right, most students identify as nuns religiously. So there are, you know, sort of a whole swath of people who are having their civic engagement look very different. That's not just college in a church or synagogue. And then again, we know that people's home life, whether this parent or guardian, is much more complex um, and, and differentiated than we thought. So if the pillars of how we thought about socialization are, are much different now in 2024 than when a lot of the writing was done um, in the 60s through 80s, to me, that is that is like what our call as higher ed professionals, student affairs educators in particular, is that that work, you know, it continues for us, right? So for me, again, my own story includes getting to the University of Florida and, and having opportunities to participate in fraternities and orientation and, you know, different things where we were having to deal with what was going on politically or nationally, talk with students. And I was learning from, you know, mentors to say like, hey, here's how we talk about these things or here's how these things intersect with your own um, lived experiences. And that was really powerful for me. And so I think there's opportunities, all that to say, um, where we can play a role, right? Like higher ed can't do all of the socialization around politics, but I think we have a really in, unique and important role in the opportunities that we have to have those conversations to think about, wow, you know, what happened on Tuesday at the I or Monday on the I at the Iowa caucuses? What did you see? What did you hear? What was interesting? How does that relate to where you grew up? How was it different? Um, and those probing questions get students to think, right, and, and um, help them think about their own values, their own lived experiences. And so I think really practically being willing to have those conversations, not in a way, and I know everybody's always like, well, we, we're going to you know, indoctrinate students. And I'm like, students are way more resilient than we give them credit for. <laughs> like, when have you ever been able to convince a 20-year-old to do something that they don't want to do, right? Like, it, it's... <laughs> They're, they, you know, are, are they're going to sort of, they're, they're open to opportunities for conversation. And I think that's something that we can cultivate as higher ed educators. Um, how do we have conversations that are thoughtful? And that's one of the things we're excited about this framework, is it gives us sort of a way into conversation about what we hope this society can look like, um, but then have opportunities for follow-up. So it's a really flowery answer, but I think really tangibly, it's having opportunities to have um, conversations about what people want to experience as they move, you know, to and through their different phases of life um, and, and, you know, thinking about that role that we can play as advisors or, um, you know, sort of student or, um, you know, mentors in the different spaces that we take up. Yeah. 
Adam, go ahead. Um, so I, in addition to everything Dimitri said, which I, I, I agree with, um, I, so when I was doing my dissertation, um, which is like 10 years ago now, I defended in 2015, I, what I was studying was how students were using social media and how it was impacting their civic learning and participation and, um, and everything ranging from their activism to just kind of uh, surface level learning around different issues. And I remember at that time there was a there was a cohort of us, I think many of whom have been guests <laughs> on this very yeah. uh, show um, across the country who were studying issues of, on on digital platforms and social media and we all became friends. Um, and one of the things I feel like was a common refrain from all of us to professionals was to think beyond just like the physical campus around mm -hmm. what mm -hmm. was happening and to to not just disregard it and be like, oh, that's online, you know, like, and, and I don't mean that in the sense of like policing what was happening in other spaces, but to, to really think about student development and think about the full student experience in a way that has changed, you know, at, at that point even. Um, and I think that there are some, you know, some of that's continued and some of it is more like parallel in this discussion. Um, I think that um, the ways in which students are gaining or gathering information has changed completely since that time. Um, some of the challenges that they're facing in terms of their democratic participation and their civic engagement has changed. Um, and so I think that like anyone who considers themselves an educator in uh, in the, you know, K-16 plus space, like I think needs to think about like, what does that mean? Like, what are we up against in terms of dis and misinformation? What are we up against in terms of um, how quickly uh, like activist movements can happen? And how does that fly in the face of like these traditional structures of student engagement, which for a long time, I think have been outmoded in comparison to how things happen. And that gives students a reason to turn away from their college or university when they're like, oh, I'm not gonna wait six months for funding or six months for a space or like recognition in the student organization process. So I think that it, like it's easy to manage something away sometimes as as someone who worked in student affairs for six years, like I've seen it, like you can, you can put up these structural barriers to stop students um, by just being like, oh, there's like these 10 different forms and they each take a week to get processed. <laughs> um, or you can just wait for a student to graduate. <laughs> I've seen people do things like that. Yeah. And um, that that's not that to me, that's that's not being an educator. Like that's that's failing on the on the duties of the of the role. So um, but in terms of like some of the positive things that people can do, especially in student affairs, I think that putting students in spaces of cognitive dissonance and in spaces where they're challenged, and in spaces where they challenge themselves to think um, with depth around different issues and to engage with others from, um, you know, sometimes like very different backgrounds from their own, sometimes like a little bit different. I think that that's all part of the learning experience. And I think that a lot of that, you know, with student safety in mind, of course, um, within reason I'm talking here, but to, to allow students to have moments of critical thinking and to intentionally set up those environments, um, is really an important part of, of this work. And I think, you know, like I said, we're, I don't think Dimitri and I view this as like a prescriptive thing, but I think that, you know, this framework and others that are out there are ways to start thinking about like, how does my work align with this? I always say to, 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 um, to folks that are in our space, um, you know, look at your college's statements around civic, you know, their mission statement where they'll say, we prepare students for civic life or, you know, for active engagement in democracy. Um, but there is a question of like, are you actually doing your work in a way that aligns with that? And are you thinking about that when you're, when you're planning out um, events, learning opportunities, engagement? And I think that, you know, this is what we're trying to provide here is, is yet another way for people to think about um, aligning mission, vision, and values with like daily practice yeah. um, and strategic planning. 
Yeah, I I know campuses are often kind of rethinking that, and and I think you raise a couple of really interesting, you know, one is the bricks and mortar of the campus isn't always the boundary, you know, it's the, it can be in lots of other spaces, and when I think about like where students learn, you know, that that is a that is a whole nother uh, topic, and I think the conversations among and between. You know, we also lost some of that ability during COVID to come together and actually be in spaces where we had to experience, you know, kind of that dissonance. We could just, you know, turn off our camera, go on mute, you know, it's, it's like that ability to be in that kind of space of discomfort. Um, and I think we're seeing the, the repercussions of that now to a certain extent on our campuses where, um, you know, at least on my campus, I'm I'm seeing a lot of like struggles with being in those kind of inner group dialogue spaces. Um, that's the, just a just to preview some future episodes that we're that we're queuing up because I think it's um, it's a a part of a larger conversation about you know what yeah. does that conversation look like. Yeah, I'm so glad to hear that there will be, and I can't wait to check out the future episodes because one of the things that I, I was going to bring up that I'm thinking a lot about now is how, and, and to answer the sort of original question as well about what folks can be doing or how to sort of enact this is, you know, I think for many of us that were working on college campuses in 2016 after the, the sort of, you know, sort of surprise election and, and, you know, many campuses were caught flat footed in terms of providing sort of student resources and support. And then, uh, you know, we go to 2020 and we're sort of, you know, sort of peak pandemic time. So there, there was campus stuff, but it was more muted. And now, you know, in 2024, so one of the themes in terms of, you know, I feel like we've gotten a little rusty as campuses where like the, the voter engagement stuff is, is really strong and that's important. But, you know, Adam and I both are on approach like that is a component of a component, right? Like, yes, we want active voter engagement, get out the vote. That's so important. But there are all of these other components to how we can engage students um, in this. And, and, and part of it is being proactive and thinking through, you know, regardless of how the election turns out, there's gonna be all of these little things that happen to and through and are already happening, you know, to and through that campuses need to be prepared for, you know, and so what are those conversations at department meetings um, around, hey, if this were to happen, like, you know, if, you know, Trump gets indicted and can't actually be on the ballot and there are gonna be segments of our students who, you know, feel like that is the biggest injustice ever, what are we gonna do? What supports are we going to provide? Vice versa, right? If, you know, certain, if certain candidate wins or certain things happen, and, and what I'm anxious about is, you know, the pandemic kind of in terms of that institutional response hasn't, you know, we haven't had to activate that in terms of intergroup dialogue, in terms of how to model, you know, this, this some of this critical thinking well in person, right? Like where there's proximity. Um, and so I, I'm, I'm hoping and encouraging people to be proactive now um, thinking about those things because, you know, November 2024 will be here before we know it, but there are going to be a ton of things that happen before it. And, you know, the, the time is now to sort of be thinking about that beyond voter engagement, beyond what are we doing for get out the vote? What are the other supports and systems? Um, and and are we, do we have a plan with all the various scenarios that are going on in, in contextualized for your state, right? Contextualized for because yeah. one of the things we hear all the time, like, you know, I'm in red state so-and-so and we can't say these things. And it's like, yeah, that's fair. But we, but ultimately we want to support students. We want to create educational environments. So how do we talk about it and be, you know, creative in our conversations? And that takes even more planning if you are in a context where you maybe can't as readily, you know, think about things and do things. And so that's where the sort of, you know, proactive and being on offense is really important to me. Um, and and I'm, we're starting to see some of it, but um, for how things might play out, I'm, I'm curious and encouraging others to think about that more and more. This has been such a great conversation. I'm glad that we kind of, um, you know, broke away from the script and just kind of chatted at the end because there's so many other, so there, there has to be like 2.0 or 3.0 conversation here, um, particularly as we get closer and then beyond the, the election, which I know is just, just a component of all of this, but is definitely sparking my attention. Um, so this episode or this podcast rather is called student affairs now i'd love to hear a couple of final thoughts about what you're pondering considering thinking about troubling 
And then if you um, would like folks to be able to connect with you, any way that they can do that, whether it's LinkedIn or Twitter, or if people are still using Twitter, this has been a conversation we've been having. It's like, do we even still say that? Um, or or other other ways that folks can connect with you. So Dimitri, I'll start with you. Yeah, so one of the other things uh, on top of just kind of being prepared for all of the things and trying not to be flat-footed, so having those conversations, I'm also really worried about student burnout around politics in particular because of how, you know, sort of activated, whether it's, you know, sort of Israel, Hamas, or, you know, there's still the lingering impacts of, of Me Too and, you know, the summer of 2020 and George Floyd that we haven't, um, you know, sort of engaged in restorative ways to sort of think through those traumas. And now we're adding on top of it. And, you know, for many of us that are working with student leaders who are experiencing and being responsive to all these things. So what is sort of political burnout is basically the question I've been thinking um, look like, you know, are people exhausted by the conversation, exhausted by the, you know, sort of 24-7, you know, sort of CNN, Fox News of it all, um, and and how do we still do all of the, you know, aspirational things we've talked about to this point when people are, are tired and, and burn out and, and cynical. And so, you know, that's where when, why we invite people to think with us. I don't have the answer to that, but I would love for us, you know, as a community, um, of, of higher ed educators and student affairs professionals in particular to think through like how do we support students through burnout um, in, in ways that manifest differently because it's not just like racial battle fatigue or it's not just um, you know the sort of like activist labor that Chris Linder and others have talked about but there's this particular component of, of politics that I'm, I'm, I'm really interested in. Um, and then, yeah, where you can find me, I'm on LinkedIn. Um, still have a Twitter, but not that active um, um, at, D, at D Morgan PhD. Um, and so, yeah, I would love to connect. Um, obviously, I get really excited about these topics and love hearing from others and learning from others. And so, you know, please, you know, definitely reach out and connect. Great. Thanks, Dimitri. Adam. Um, so one thing I've been thinking a lot about lately is, um, and actually like this has been kind of an ongoing curiosity of mine is, um, like sort of youth political, political identity development, which was brought up earlier, but I think, um, like some of the researchers in the space, I feel like often revert back to kind of traditional forms of like, had, you know, as a student, uh, Democrat or are they Republican or are they or are they magically an independent or you know, and I think that what I've seen, and I draw a lot of my like the most interesting things that I see are in, like the space of intersecting of like arts, library sciences, information technology, and people that like aren't really like traditional researchers that like kind of dig into these issues that are just kind of, uh like they're probably online too much, <laughs> but they like are, have these observations of like what they're seeing in the spaces. And one of them is really, really hyper-specific, sometimes contradictory political identities in young people. So they don't see themselves. I mean, they're, they're like miles from being part of a political party and there are issues that they care about, but the ground like shifts very quickly underneath them. And they see themselves as kind of like patchwork identity of um, different viewpoints. And it's like, to me, that seems very uh, unpredictable. And like, I say that without any actually like positive or negative judgment on it. It's actually just, I, I'm just curious about it of like how those identities form and then what implications that has long-term for like the political identity of the country. Um, and then globally, because I think that that's, I think that's actually very much a product of of the internet and how social media works is that um, you have kind of these like different clusters of like how someone views themselves and how they understand and engage with like the political arena and democracy. So that's something I'm like, I like I'm always following that like general area of, of interest. Um, if people want to connect with me, um, yeah, LinkedIn's probably the best, like feel free to add me just Adam Gizmondi. There's one other one out there. He works for World Wrestling Entertainment and it's not me. <laughs> um, but we do accidentally get emails for each other and forward back and forth. So we have a funny dialogue. 
That's um, hilarious that you know that. <laughs> same middle name too, which is the really strange thing. Um, but yeah, LinkedIn um, and uh, I Twitter is just Adam Gizmondi um, or email me. Um, I think it's up on the on our website. Um, and yeah, we'll be sharing links for other ways to connect with the work. Um, and yeah, thanks for listening to this point for anyone that's still on. Okay, great. Well, thank you both. Um, just really appreciate the conversation and the, the you know, the generative um, work that you all are doing in this space. And I've, I'm really excited to have our listeners engage. Um, I also want to take a moment to express our gratitude for our producer, Nat Ambrosi, does all this amazing work behind the scenes to make us look and sound great. You are amazing, Nat. Um, and also thanks to today's episode sponsors. So Leadership partners with colleges and universities to create transformational leadership experiences for students and professionals with a focus on creating a more just, caring, and thriving world. Leadership offers engaging learning experiences on courageous dialogue, integrity, equity, resilience, and community building. And you can find out more by visiting leadership.org or connect with them on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or LinkedIn. And Rutledge Taylor Francis is the world's leading academic publisher in education, publishing a wide range of books, journals, and other resources for practitioners, faculty, and administrators, and researchers. Um, and uh, recently, Rutledge Taylor Francis welcomed Stylus Publishing to their publishing program, and they are thrilled to enrich their offerings in higher education, teaching, student affairs, professional development, assessment, and more. And so we're really grateful for their support of the podcast, Student Affairs Now, and you can visit and view their complete catalog of education titles at rutledge.com education. So to all of our listeners, if you're tuning in today, haven't yet subscribed to our weekly newsletter, please take a moment to enter your email on our website. And while you're there, you can download our recent archives, recently published episodes, um, and look forward to seeing you all in the future. Uh, once again, I'm Heather Shea. Thanks for everybody who's watching, listening. Let's make it a great week. <laughs>